The Saint of the Wilderness, also known as Sheffy, by Jess Carr, Chapter 6. Robert told his story to his brother, and at James's and Ellen's invitation, took up residence with them in Marion. He would not have accepted his brother's hospitality a month previously. It was different now. It was different for more reasons than Robert could fathom, but he felt them all whether he could explain them or not. For one thing, the month was April, a little over six weeks since he had stepped into Yancey Dox's buggy for the first time. It seemed to him more like six years. April was a good time to think things out and a good time simply to be alive. Soon the dogwoods and the Judas trees would be in bloom and all would seem fresh and new. Abingdon would be most beautiful of all. For even in this year of 1839, Washington County and the town itself were old, over 60 years old, and for Scythia, Apple, Japonica, Spira, and other flowering shrubbery from the mother county, many times divided and replanted, added magnificently to those native colors that of themselves painted a canvas of breathtaking beauty. He did not think it strange that Abingdon seemed so exquisite in the eyes of his mind, for he felt now that it would be the only way he would see it ever again. Both James and Ellen were sympathetic to his feelings of hurt at the hands of his Aunt Elizabeth. He thought, however, that they didn't fully understand, couldn't fully understand. James had made some passing remark about pride and mentioned the matter no more. James informed him soon afterward that he himself was more interested in the years ahead rather than the past. In that connection, he advised Robert to be thinking about his plans for the future. Robert did so, first keeping his appointment on the banks of the Holston, where he was baptized. With James's help, he had gotten a summer job clerking at Tate's store, a dry, dry goods establishment located near the hotel and stage stop. The next suggestion James made took him by surprise. Robert, college is not going to be easy for you. You will be the first to admit uh, your lack of zeal for learning. After closing hours at your store job, I have arranged to have you tutored by a very scholarly gentleman here in Marin. His name is George Washington Buchanan, and you will like him. He takes to scholarship with the same de dedication as that of a beautiful woman to her mirror. But I'll be going to college in June, Robert protested. That's the idea. I want you to be adequately prepared for college. You will be working on the college farm part of the time, and when you get to the classroom, you must be ready. If you are not a serious student, they will tell you quickly to go home and stay. Robert consented and went to his tutor faithfully every Tuesday and Thursday evenings and a half day on Saturday. It was not long before the names of Plato, Alexander the Great, Ramses II, Pliny the Elder and Younger, not to mention the great composers and poets of the world, became well known to him. There were some his tutor mentioned of necessity, but with a shudder, Voltaire was foremost among these, with Callus and Labar not far behind. 
It was bad enough to be anti-Christian, Mr. Buchanan explained, but in the case of Voltaire, to be a writer of naughty plays and a mocker of public figures was just too much to have been so loved for his devilment that admiring lady friends would, at his death, have his heart cut out and preserved in a silver box was downright ludicrous, Mr. Buchanan said. Still, the man was too historically important to ignore. Robert's tutor not only breathed the breath of life into the great and near great of the world, but he was equally fascinated by algebra and logic, and he admitted to lying awake nights, hacking his brain uh, with the latest developments to chemistry as well. George Washington Buchanan frequently reminded his student of the short amount of time they had to work together. If it was possible to cram a man's head with knowledge like the barrel of a muzzle-loading rifle, it tamped with a powder and shot. Robert was quite sure that his tutor was so doing. The first of June came none too soon. Classes at Emory and Henry did not commence until the latter part of July, but Robert did, as most of his classmates were doing, working a month ahead to build up work credits. The work to be done on the college farm during midsummer consisted mostly of raising and pr processing food for either the students and faculty or the farm animals. One rarely had the choice of working in the gardens or the hayfield work was by assignment. It was in the hayfield where he met Zeno, Sprinkle, Raleigh, Stinson, and Hurum Strong, students like himself. During the first part of July, the four of them worked steadily. Zeno, the chunky one of the four, maintained his vigil around the hay pole, seeing more and more of the pole disappear at the hay rose as the hay rose higher and higher. He walked around and around the pole, packing the hay with his feet, and as the stack rose higher, his perch became more precarious. His wiry red hair seemed to stand out in all directions when the haystack reached a needle point and the walking surface narrowed to nothing. Robert and Hiram Strong titled the ladder upright, uh, tilted the ladder upright against the haystack and Raleigh Stinson started up the ladder with the weights to fence rails tied two fence rails tied together that uh, would be looped around the hay pole and allowed to hang down the stack to keep the wind from blowing away or any of the hay away their fieldmaster who during the academic sessions would probably be just as precise in the classroom as he was in the field, explained to them the desirability of getting the weights on properly. If the wind does not take oh, any of the hay from the stack, then the stack remains peaked at the top and turns the rain, rain well, he said. Zeno said that he was not impressed with such a detailed explanation of fundamental logic as he asked Robert and the others why the field master teacher didn't realize that every boy in the field was experienced in this task long before he came to college. 
Zeno then said, Maybe I'd better change my mind about becoming a teacher if they all get feeble-minded. They laughed, but Zeno was always making observations like that, and the truth was that none of them could quite envision Zeno as a teacher. They had discussed it as the time for classes to begin came nearer. Each boy, except Robert, seemed pretty positive about his life's work. Raleigh Stenson, like Zeno, wanted to be a teacher. Raleigh, however, seemed the epitome of what a teacher should be, articulate, commanding, and with a personal vibrancy that would be a great asset to, in the classroom. He even looked like the stereotype of the schoolmaster, with bushy hair, a gaunt frame, and the pointed intellectual nose. Hiram Strong resembled Raleigh Stinson in physical appearance, but he was much more prone to weigh his words before speaking, and when he did speak, his words seemed to carry such conviction that they were most times incontestable. But strangely, this evidence of powerful intellect did not seem to detract from a capacity for compassion. They were not bad attributes for a minister, Robert thought, if Hiram continued his plans in that direction. Sure, or such were Robert's closest friends as they began the more serious part of the school term. Lawrence Sheffy had his own friends at the college, but he did help his brother to adjust in every way possible. Although the college proper sat in the midst of 600 acres, 590 of those acres could still be considered farmland. The main college building was a large brick one, four stories high in the center with a wing on each side of the main building rising three stories high. The building had a deep basement and a steep pitched garret, neither of which was wasted room. Squire Henry, the Negro janitor, lived in the basement, but if anybody thought his duties consisted only of keeping the living quarters and classrooms clean, they simply did not know the college tradition. Squire Henry was friend and confidant to every boy in the school and a self-taught authority on the Revolutionary War. He could also quote the works of Chancellor from memory. Uh, by July 20th, the boys had their class assignments and their work accounts reconciled. Robert, Zeno, Hiram, and Raleigh had each accumulated about 160 hours work credit and figured at the set rate of five cents per hour. They had about eight dollars to apply toward tuition, board, books, and the fee for the use of the library. It sure isn't any way to get rich, Zeno expressed what seemed to be a universal opinion. All of them, including Lawrence and his friends, and still others, were not discouraged. However, from the hard schedule, a study started at 5 o'clock in the morning and lasted until 1 p.m., after lunch, they all did farm work from 2 o'clock until 5 o'clock p.m., and from 7 p.m. until 9 p.m., 
Studying was again the order of the day, but it wasn't too much for any boy, or if it was, not one would admit it. Robert worked hard as one week passed into another. Often at his side, sharing both knowledge and encouragement, was Lawrence. Much of what was to be learned seemed to Robert a useless waste of time. Zeno agreed with him, but Raleigh and Harum would make no complaint. It will all come in handy, Hiram would say authoritatively, meaning that all learning would find application somewhere. Robert and Zeno would grudgingly concede the momentary wisdom of the statement and buckle down to Hedge's uh, logic, Wayland's political economic economy, Turner's chemistry, or Kingsley's tatistus and others. There were, were reviews with each professor at the end of every month of the session. Robert, your Uncle James would be proud of you, were he still living, Ephraim Wiley said at the end of the first review month. Robert thanked the professor and remembered how much more hostile his elder had seemed when they first talked at the 4th of July celebration in Abingdon. I want you to do as well the rest of the session. I suspect you will like some of the literature we will be studying, as well as your chance at oratory, Professor Wiley said. Robert said he probably would, and chuckled to himself, remembering Zeno practicing his elocution in advance while rounding up the milk cows in the late afternoon. His resonant voice sounded the sharp A's and round O's was enough to uh, sour the cow's milk, Hiram Strong would say without the hint of a smile. Robert, too, would work on his elocution in the fields, among the animals, and everywhere else. Your voice is too soft, Riley opined, and you're not getting any roll in your O's, uh, nor any force and depth in your voice, Hiram added. Zeno practiced gestures while Robert tried again and again. When the time came to put all his rehearsals into application, Robert was a miserable failure uh, at oratory. His high voice went even higher. He forgot how to use his hands, and his short arms hung limply at his sides. As if all that wasn't bad enough, his speech displayed no continu continuity of thought, and his delivery ended up in a jumbled outpouring of unrelated half-thoughts. He was embarrassed as well as were his classmates, who couldn't help showing it. His embarrassment turned to despondency when there was no noticeable improvement in succeeding days. Nothing Lawrence or his friends said to him seemed to compensate for this failure. Professor Wiley approached him one day after the class had adjourned. Robert, not all men are born to speak well, nor can some of them be taught. It is no disgrace. Many of our students go on to become farmers or merchants, 
if one does not intend to become a teacher or minister or lawyer, proficiency in oratory is not mandatory. I know that. Thank you, sir, Robert said formally and left the room. He wanted to say more to his professor, but the time had not seemed right. He had told no one what he wanted to be, although he had felt the birth pangs of it months ago. If this ambition ever really came to fruition, he would need the ability that seemed to flee from him. That night during the study period, he closed his books and left the building. To the northeast of the structure, a steep hill overlooked the college grounds. He climbed to the crest, knowing well that his act was contrary to college rules. He ought to be studying, and by 9.30 he was supposed to be in bed. The thought of it bothered him little, but the moon was bright and the night only slightly chill. It was the first week of September, and he knew that winter would soon be upon the campus. Thinking about that, he became still more chilled and put his hands under his armpits for warmth. In the distance, he could see the lamplight in the dormitory windows, looking like another world to him, with an ocean separating the orange glow of the windows from his solitary perch. Suddenly, he jumped from his seated position and ran a ways down the opposite side of the hill. The night air invigorated him, and he wished he could keep on running, or better still, that he could be upon the saddled back of Ginger, headed back, headed by Harvest Moonlight to the banks of the Holston. He thought about Big Edmund and Anne and how they were getting along. He thought about he thought also of Yancey Dock, and wondered if the flesh had rotted from his bones, and which place in the unseen eternity the soul of his friend had found refuge. The thought that Yancey Dock might be roasting in a never-ending hell caused Robert to grit his teeth in a kind of inner pain. He could not put the doctor out of his mind. No matter how much he tried, it could not be done. At the strangest times, the face of Yancey Doc appeared to him. Sometimes in the visions, his friend would be doing a great kindness, and at other times, he would be submerged in the blackest of evil. Robert felt that if he could justify the doctor's life and philosophy in some way, the visions would disappear and no longer bother him. At times, he felt as if Yancey Doc called to him from the farthest reaches of eternity, but the call had no message. What could possibly explain a man like Yancey Doc? Had there been both a devil and an angel beneath his skin, and while one worked the other slept? Robert thought of his own conversion, and how quietly and serenely his own being was being changed. He had as yet talked deeply to no one about it in the sense of what it meant to him. He had hoped to do so with his Aunt Elizabeth, and casually he had mentioned it to Yancey Doc, but his friend had cut him off with a definite signal of disinterest. Once, when he and Yancey Doc were working among the sick, he started to open his heart to Matthew Collagen, but something always seemed to interrupt. All in all, his life up to now didn't add up to much. He felt the peace of God in his heart.
but he hadn't done much about it. Indeed, it was not at all clear what God expected him to do, if anything. Lately, he had experienced a sense of mission, but maybe the sense was too weak to be real, and he was not sure whether his thoughts were more those of fantasy than of guidance. One thing was certain, whatever things he felt in his heart would have to stay there throughout the week he had proved to himself, his classmates, and his professor that he had no ability to speak convincingly about them in any well-prepared and professional manner. Now his head started to spin and his heart was heavy. He descended the hill wearily, feeling the dew soak into his brogans and making his feet as wet as his eyes. He tiptoed through the dark halls and fell onto his bed. Bed. That next afternoon, he and Zeno were assigned to clean out some of the stalls, but they had worked only a few minutes when Lawrence stuck his head through the door. I'm afraid I have some bad news, Robert. Aunt Elizabeth has sent a courier to tell us that Francis has died. Was he at home? Robert asked. No, in Florence, Alabama. He had been ill with fever, Aunt Elizabeth said almost a duplication of the tragedy James Lowry suffered. Robert began to wonder if family investments in the state of Alabama had not turned into a sinister omen. Will you go to Aunt Elizabeth? Robert asked. Yes. Will you accompany me? I don't feel I could give her any comfort. Very well, then. I will be back tomorrow. Zeno looked at him strangely with questioning eyes. Finally, he said, your cousin? Did I understand right? Yes, my aunt's third son. He was just admitted to the bar a few months ago. He was only 24 and was graduated from Princeton with honors, Robert added as a sort of final tribute. Toward the end of September, Robert's monthly com conference was scheduled not with Professor Wiley, but with Reverend Charles Collins, president of the college. Lawrence, aware of his brother's nightly wanderings, had told Robert that the conference would cover the subject of rule-breaking. Lawrence's warning did not frighten him, and he was prepared to tell Reverend Collins or anybody else that he could search for life's answers at the top of the hill in the moonlight just as well or better than in the classroom. You know you have broken the rules of the college, Reverend Collins began firmly and calmly. Yes, sir, Robert confessed. The evening hours before bedtime are set aside for study. Begging your pardon, sir, but I have been studying, Robert said. I mean the conventional kind, Robert, with your books open by lamplight. Your college work has been going downhill lately. You are aware of that, aren't you? I can't understand some of the chemical formulations, and logic sometimes gets hard for me. It's more than that. Your whole attitude has changed, Professor Wiley thinks part of your trouble has to do with your failure at oratory. Why is this so important to you? Do you hope to go into law, teaching? I wanted to be able to speak. I don't know altogether why, and I don't know what I want to be for sure yet. Robert, you must learn to conform to the college rules 
and if you expect to stay here, you will find us harsher than before. I suggest you put your failure at oratory out of your mind and settle down to work. I admire your desire to grasp something you obviously cannot, but Professor Wiley assures me that this is not one of your talents. You might as well accept the fact that whatever life holds for you, public speaking will not be a part of it. I'll sure miss walking up the hill. I'm getting a lot straight up there. It's the most peaceable place in the world to get your thoughts in order. Do your walking after supper or Sundays after church, Reverend Collins said and dismissed him. Robert tried to keep the rules for a while, but when the first snow came in November, he was not deterred from climbing to the peak. Sometimes he would ask Zeno or Riley and Hiram to accompany him, but most times he preferred to go by himself. Once he sketched a landscape seen from the top of the hill for Lawrence to hang in his room. During church one day, at the end of the month, a second and very heavy snow fell. He could not wait to trudge his way to the peak, for his soul felt full, and the morning sermon had opened his eyes to something. The minister had preached long and eloquently. His theme was that most of mankind did not respond to the call of God because they did not feel his loving kindness. After his dinner, Robert walked up the hill alone, thinking of the responsive chord that this message had struck in his heart. In truth, he knew not why the thought moved him so, but immediately his thoughts turned to Yancey Doc. His friend had surely been exposed to the teachings of the Bible and must have bypassed the call to conversion dozens of times. He had implied as much. Then why had no one been able to reach him? No matter how Robert approached the question, from Yancey Doc's point of view or his own, the answer came out the same. The doctor had not found the peace of God simply because he had never felt nor been shown God's loving kindness and grace. Nobody had stood halfway between God and Yancey Doc to be the convincing messenger to point the way. Yancey Doc had either missed the entire mission of Christ or ignored it altogether, and no minister or friend was ever able to bridge the gap as intermediary. The first session of college ended just before Christmas, and Robert came back to James and Ellen's house more learned but more confused. He was even thinking about dropping out of college before the February term began. James's reaction to the pronouncement was a quick reestablishment of tutorial services from George Washington Buchanan. Uh, Robert was told that if he kept up his studies during the in interim of six weeks between sessions, he would not lose interest in going back in February. It was a poor kind of logic, Robert thought, but neither James nor his tutor agreed. Robert made his appearance at the home of Mr. Buchanan the day after Christmas. He was minus a great coat, even though the day was bitterly cold and the wind howled with furiosity. Fur uh, do you wish to destroy yourself by 
coming out in this weather without a great coat? George Washington Buchanan asked. I don't have one, and James said he would not buy another until I learned my lesson. I must say it occurred to me uh, what he had in mind just walking over here. I am chilled to the morrow of my bones. In the name of Jehoshaphat, what happened to your great coat? Did you get careless and lose it? In a way, I suppose. I went down to the dry goods store where I worked last summer to pay my respects and then stopped by the hotel for a few minutes. A man got off the westbound stage without a coat, and his body shook so bad from the cold that he could hardly stand up. And you gave him your coat? Yes, Robert confessed. James said if I went without one for a while and checked the price of a new one, I might appreciate ownership a little more. You cannot be charitable to give every rum guzzler, guzzler you meet. <clears throat> your brother works hard at his practice, and keeping you in school adds to his burden. Purchases of extra great coats do not ease his situation. One day, shortly after New Year's, Robert made clear to his tutor his reluctance to study. He did, did want to talk of other things, however. Have you ever thought that too much learning might be the work of the devil? Robert asked. What? Mr. Buchanan's glasses nearly fell from his, their place far down on his uh, bulbous nose as he jerked to attention. I mean, couldn't a man get so smart that he thought he knew everything and had no humbleness at all? I should think it would be very hard to get that smart. Very hard indeed. But it could happen, couldn't it? Robert pressed the question. I suppose it could. Maybe. The other retreated a little. Even if it just happened a little, wouldn't it be wrong? Well, humility is not always virtuous, Mr. Buchanan hedged a little. I have lately come to think otherwise. I don't have enough, and I have been awakened to it. I am sinful with pride. Now wait, Robert. I do not hear confessions. I enlighten minds when given half a chance. And he peered mockingly at Robert over the top of his glasses. Robert ceased his probings that day and studied half heartily thereafter until it was time to re-enter Emory and Henry in February. There was more time for reflection and study in the second session than in the first. The weather was too bad to do anything out of doors except clean the barns and see that the animals were fed. It would do if one did not relish books. There was an abundance of time on hand. Robert made an honest effort at study and spent longer periods in conversation with Zeno and Riley and Hiram too when he could command the latter's time and attention. Lawrence tried to get him interested in drama, for during the winter months, thespian endeavors especially seemed to flourish. Robert paid scant attention to the art of the theater, saying that all men were acting all the time and that no need existed to pay attention to their acting at a given time or place. He started the long outside walks again, 
whenever he felt the need. At first, no one said anything, for the winter was unusually severe, and many of the students felt an unsuppressible cabin fever. The professors recognized this and relaxed their regulations a little. Robert's interest in his studies began to decline again in March, and once more he sat before Reverend Collins. Robert extended to Reverend Collins the courtesy of speaking first, but made his own point quickly. I wish to leave college, he said. All your, of your actions indicate that you do, but why? Reverend Collins asked. The learning is wrong for me. Too much of it would make me more haughty and proud. There is no reason that you should not be proud of learning, Reverend Collins said, and whatever you do, you will need this and more. I have been thinking for many weeks about knowledge. Isn't it true that all knowledge comes from God? That everything you and the other professors know come from Him? Even that all things to be known will come from God? Robert could see the magnitude of the question stunned Reverend Collins somewhat, but his elder answered quickly, Yes, Robert, in a manner of speaking, but this does not uh, remove from us the obligation to do our part in gaining such knowledge. I do not agree, sir. If I give my life to God, he will give me all the wisdom I need to be his advocate. Robert, I had not thought of you in the ministry. I mean no offense, but you are in no way qualified, and I must discourage you. Now promise me once more you will pay serious mind to your studies. Have you ever given thought to becoming a teacher? Robert said he had, but didn't believe that he could address a room full of older children. Give some thought to tutoring smaller children then, Reverend Collins said, and you will need more than divine help for that task also, he added with a smile. Robert made no promises, and within a week he was gone. He came back to Marion and tried to explain to his brother and sister-in-law why he had left college. He asked to stay with in their house, promising to get a, his job back at Tate's and pay his own room and board. The arrangements worked well, and James soon appeared to accept the fact that Robert would never return to college. Robert kept his own room, or otherwise took pains not to interfere in the social or business life of his brother. By midsummer, he started attending all the revivals within a day's riding distance of Marion. When there were no revivals, he would simply drop in to a church at random, paying little attention to the denomination or the appearance of the church building. Neither did he observe the color of the congregation, and one Sunday, in the community of Adkins, he unintentionally interrupted a Negro church service. He walked into the building in the middle of a rousing spiritual and recognized uh, Anne, whom he immediately sought out and hugged vigorously. He must have given the impression that a white man was attempting to drag the woman from the building when her uh, shouts went up. Moments later, the verses of the hymn resounded from the log rafters again. In August, he attended a revival in the village of Saltville, where the sweating Baptist minister in his clothing pleas uh, was getting few converts. Robert noticed a man a little older than himself who appeared to be in deep travail. 
several times, the man would seem in an anguish of indecision and yet unable to move from his bench. Robert got up from his seat and went to him, kneeling at his side and offering words of comfort and encouragement. The minister observed Robert's efforts and prolonged the service with more pleas and singing. Soon Robert came walking down the aisle with the young man and sat with him on the penitent's seat. When the service was over, the exhausted preacher came to Robert with outstretched hand. Do I have a visiting brother of the cloth in my midst? he asked. No, I am not a preacher. I just saw a brother who lacked only the loving kindness of God to make his journey to the front. Bless you for your exhortation, my brother. Without you, our convert might be sitting at the point of indecision until this time next year. Robert disclaimed the credit, and yet his success was more than a little startling. The hand of God is upon the exhorter as well as the preacher. Do you consider this work a calling? I don't know, Robert said earnestly. He thought about it, writing back to Marion. The word exhorter was almost as new to him as what was expected of such a person. More thought and study on the matter revealed that such a calling was indeed a div divine one. In Philippians, he read of Eurodius and Scythici, uh, and he learned of those non-clerical men throughout history who had been intermediaries between a loving God and a reluctantly yielding man, a reluctantly yielding mankind. The revivals around Marion did not end until the passing of the new year. By then, the weather prevented attendance, or no warm place could be found to conduct them. But as long as they lasted, Robert made the rounds, sometimes to more than one on the same day. An exhorter did not get paid, but Robert was saving a little money from the meager pay at his store job. Soon he would own his horse, and James would not frown at him each time he saddled up and rode off. By the spring of 1841, Robert was again in the saddle, covering even greater distances than he had the previous year. Before daylight on Sundays, he would ready his own horse and quietly leave Marion, and as often as not he would return by the light of the moon. This rigorous schedule extracted a toll from him, and he found it hard to keep his mind on his work at the dry goods store. His employer spoke to him, but not as severely as he might have, for he had heard of Robert's good work. Nevertheless, the conflict grew greater for him. He wanted to do an honest day's work in the store during the week, but half days on Saturday and one full day on Sunday limited the range of his travels and the amount of time he could spend in his exhortations. He knew he had no ability to address a group, but his exhortations directed to one man or one woman at a church or in a home or more and more frequently along the roadways were abundantly fruitful. Increasingly, he found the opportunity to stop at homes along the byways and the less traveled roads and pathways of the mountains. During the months of summer, he started traveling short distances during the week after his regular working hours had ended. 
but he couldn't go far in the three or four hours of daylight left after work. If one man or woman, however, felt after hearing his exhortations that God's grace and loving kindness were things of reality to be drunk into one's soul, he considered the time well spent. During one week in late July, he returned home usually late to find that James had left a lamp burning in his room with a note propped against the base. The words written in James's hurried scroll said, Tragedy has again struck, and we have lost another cousin. Lawrence Alexander died today from the accidental discharge of his gun. We got the message after supper. Will you accompany us to Abingdon? Robert put the note back on his dresser. Now the fifth son of Elizabeth White was gone. It was easy to remember his cousin's age, for Robert exceeded him there by only four months. He had never felt a close kinship to Lawrence Alexander, in spite of the proximity of their ages. He remembered with pain coming to the White household in Abingdon after his father had died and his stepmother made plans to marry again. Lawrence Alexander had been the first to torment him and call him a dirty orphan. His cousin's hostility had seemed to grow with the passing of the years until it manifested itself by Lawrence Alexander's simply ignoring him altogether in favor of more exciting and socially acceptable friends. But that was all over now. Death was the greater equalizer. He would not go to Elizabeth White. God forgave him, but he could not go just yet. Perhaps he would even uh, embarrass her if he went. He agonized over the hypocrisy of what he wanted to be and what he was. But then and there, by the lamplight, he vowed to bury his pride and hurt some time in the future and be reconciled to his aunt again. It could not be now. It would take more time than that much more time. After telling Ellen that he would not be going to Abingdon, he left the house before breakfast the next morning. All day during work, he saw the grieving face of Elizabeth White. The loss of her husband and three sons would, he feared, leave her a withered, lethargic shell. Gone would be the bright sparkle in her nearly black eyes, and that perfectly blended mixture of frontier woman and gentle Gentile lady would have faded, remembered only by those of an earlier day when Elizabeth White's patrician nose and taut olive skin showed not a care nor wrinkle. For those who had seen her cut down bit by bit, the former days would not be so easily remembered, Robert suspected, but he remembered, and his heart grew sadder as the day progressed. The winter of 1841-42 was not as severe as it had been the previous year, and Robert kept up his travels with some regularity. Often his trips would amount to nothing more than a Sunday church service and then a visit with two winter-bound old people or an arthritic ex-slave holed up in a mountain cabin. As he rode the winter trails, he often thought of how badly he wanted to stand before large groups and be able to speak with force and eloquence. The scenes he remembered of trying to learn oratory at college still left him red-faced. 
He practiced speaking some days as he rode along, but his high-pitched monotone and the jumbled expression of his thoughts caused his horse to prick up her ears and then gyrate them wildly in uh, what could be interpreted as a gross offense even to an animal. In January, at Blue Springs, southeast of Marion, and near the Wythe County line, Robert was invited to a golden wedding anniversary celebration of a man he had led to conversion only the previous year. After numerous guests had consumed a savory dinner of roast turkey, a mild-mannered man of about thirty-five whom Robert had been introduced to upon his arrival sought him out. I have been hearing of you and your good works, but I wonder if your talents do not exceed or extend beyond your reputation. Robert did not know what he meant and said so. I mean, I would guess you have talent as a teacher. I am connected with the Ravencliff Iron Furnace on Cripple Creek. I will be a partner with Mr. Gleavies, the present owner, and we are interested in hiring a teacher for our own children and those of our workmen. There are other children nearby, and added to our own, they all could make up a class of nine or ten, maybe even a dozen children. Robert's face brightened instantly. I've been thinking about this very thing lately. My present job doesn't suit me too well, and teaching would give me a little speaking experience and six months of the year free. If you're interested and consider yourself qualified, with some good references to back you up, the job is yours. The pay will be adequate and will provide the supplies, building and heat. Robert shook the hand of Cass Wilkerson and sealed the gentleman's agreement. He was riding back to Marion before the thought struck him. Had he not been so quick to agree, the salary offered might have been higher, but he never had possessed a head for business. Maybe he possessed no ability as a teacher either, but with great enthusiasm, he looked forward to trying. Next time, Chapter 7.